Good morning, Crossway. As Pastor Jeremy said, the sermon for this morning is on the text of Psalm 24. We will start reading from verse 1. Psalm 24, a psalm of David. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he, is, he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Selah. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. Psalm 24 is a rich, rich psalm. Um, I trust the Lord will make do with our weak words this morning that can't do justice to this scripture. Uh, this, this, this passage is um, somewhat coming from a pastoral burden. You know that we're going our, uh, through Matthew, and probably some of you are like, oh, another like pit stop. I just want to get done with this journey. <laughs> I hope that's really not how you feel about Matthew, but, but I'm going to have a little bit of a stem-winding introduction, just kind of share some pastoral concerns I have and then dive into the text, and we're just going to be sitting in the text this morning um, for the rest of the morning in a way that I, I, won't, I won't add a lot of embellishments or stories. I just want you to see what God has for us in this text. But, so, so here are some of the concerns I have. Matthew introduces Jesus as king to a Hebrew culture that knows God as king. I, I don't think we hear the audacity of Matthew's claims. Because we think of Jesus as the Lord. We think of him as king. But for a Hebrew who's lived through the Old Testament scriptures their whole life, and then all of a sudden there's this new jumped up upstart named Jesus who says he's him. It's like, how? So when Jesus says something like, in Matthew 7, you call me Lord, but don't do what I say. That's blasphemous. Now, Jesus is suggesting that we owe him fidelity. We owe him obedience because he is the Lord. Matthew, just without embarrassment, just lays out in front of all of us that Jesus is the king. And so we read here at the end of the psalm, who is the king? And every Christian in their minds should be thinking, his name is Jesus. Matthew clearly pushes us to acknowledge Jesus is king. Over the last several months, my pastoral counseling desk has been filled with people struggling with, particularly with sexual sin. Man, that's heavy. It's heavy because that sin owns the men of this nation. It is ruining marriages before they even start. And every 13-year-old boy has access, generally speaking, in this world to a cell phone and a computer and a tablet and can just get into the most wicked, pervasive sin. That is hard to shake like nobody knows except Jesus. If you are sitting in my chair, looking across the 
desk at a young woman or young man enslaved by sexual sin, how would you call them away? With what power would you enable them to break the chains of slavery that have owned them for years? How would you appeal to them to say, stop? Are you going to be simply Bob Newhart saying, stop it? I can't. Well, just stop it. Well, what help do you have? Stop it. If that is the depth of our Christian counseling, then maybe we are just a joke like Bob Newhart's sketch. I'm concerned that within our church, that there is a desire for external holiness. But I think often our homes struggle with communicating to our children the why. So I come to this psalm, and I feel like maybe I'm just microwaving James' discussion from this morning, and it's reheated, and it won't be as good as the freshly served ministry from this morning. But I look at Psalm 24, and it's energizing, it's challenging, it's convicting. And and there's essentially three verses that the psalmist gives to us that call us to understand who our God is. And I think in many ways it answers those questions I've just laid out. How do you challenge someone to overcome sexual sin? How do you battle identity issues within your own soul? How, How do you call someone? From a life of of seemingly satisfying sin, like perhaps a professional athlete, tell them to give that up and turn to Jesus. How could you do that with any credibility? Come to Psalm 24 with me. The first verse makes a claim that, that for us sits easy, but the implications are powerful. The first claim is this, our King, our Lord is the Creator. Look in verse 1. Their earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. How do you know this? What gives him the right to declare this is his? For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Our God is the creator God. He is the one who has made it all. Again, without any apology, the claim of the psalmist here is that the Lord himself is the one who has made it all. And we we miss it. If if you have a modern translation, they generally give us a great help. So some of you are newer to the faith. Let me just explain one of the gifts we have in our English translations. They put the Lord in all caps. It's actually small caps, capital L, smaller case, O-R-D. Whenever the proper name of God is used, name Yahweh. Again, we miss it because we just see the word Lord, and it's almost a title name for us, like the word president. But you might want to think of this. If you're a Greek and someone said, who is the Lord, they might say Zeus. But if we were to ask, who is God, the Israelite would say Yahweh. And the name was sacred, it was set aside, but this is his proper name, and now in our Christian world, because it's his proper name and it stands for the Lord, it's become almost a title name, and we lose the personal nature of this. So, the earth is Yahweh's, and everything that fills it, the fullness thereof, the ESV kind of poetically frames it. The world, and what? And what? people, right? Like, like we, have, we have totally different categories of ownership, right? Like, there's stuff, and we can put our label on that. In fact, you might have a car or a house, and you have title documents. They prove ownership. Well, frankly, a lot of us don't have the title documents. A loan company actually does. And if you pay it off, then you get the title mailed to you. The title owner for every creature, everything, everything is the Lord. Everyone is owned by the Lord. You are owned by God. And and we should not think that somehow because God has used instruments to make things that they become ours and not his. 
This would be just as much true of an apple on the apple tree as much as your car in the parking lot. God owns both. Your children are not yours. They are God's. You are not yours. You are God's. And this is by right of creation, let alone redemption. Right? 1 Corinthians 6 would double down on this, where we are bought with a price, therefore glorify God, because you're not your own. So when we put this in the New Testament context of Christianity, one of the ways in which we should view ourselves, and this is not a bad way to view yourself, it's not somehow demeaning. In fact, it's the most honorable position you could possibly have. It is the best seat in the house to be owned by God. And not just singularly because he's a creator, but to be twice owned. I mean, if you, if you could picture it this way, last week we had a trailer stolen out of our parking alley area. It's already been bought and paid for and owned. And you can imagine the frustration, but the reality if Aaron, the man who owned it, came to a parking lot and saw his trailer for sale. <laughs> and he's going to think of this exact trailer I need because it's mine. But it's for sale, and he doesn't know how to deal with it other than the fact that he's going to shell out more money to buy back the trailer he already owns. That's what our Lord has done to claim you back for himself, for his glory. You are owned by God, therefore your entire purpose is to be centered in God and his son Jesus Christ. And if it is to steal and plagiarize the Apostle Paul's words, therefore glorify God. Because you're owned. And the nature of sin is such that we think we have a right to enjoy, to experience, to have. And so we trespass into God's domain and we try to change the ownership documents and the title to be owned by ourselves. I mean, isn't that the nature of sin? We, we know that God deserves all glory. You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God. And yet, we, we want praise. We want, we want appreciation wow, those are great kids. They're so well-behaved. What's your secret? Well, you and me and my wife, we are really after these kids. Instead of saying, it is simply God's grace. And in these little ways, we, we, we trespass into God's territory and poach his glory and steal it for ourselves. God is the creator of all things. Every thought, every intention, Every movement of your heart, every dollar you spend is to be done so for the purpose of pleasing your creator. Is it? Do you have little sections of your life that are yours? At least in your mind. The little secret sins that own you. One of the tells I have that I'm not living well. Well, what are the many tells? One of them's grumpy. I need to say that one because my wife will check me if I don't say that later. She'll check me later if I don't say it now. But the other one is like, what causes me anger or irritability? Right? Like, I'm going through life, minding my own business. I'm happy. I love Jesus. I'm doing good. And then all of a sudden, some dumb person does the thing that drives me nuts. Right? It's like, it's like my world is good. But there's like a couple pieces of turf. If someone steps on that, it's like a landmine of anger explodes in my mind, and I will unleash the fury of Mark Almighty on him. And sometimes I'm smart enough to know that that will hurt my reputation, so for my own sake, I hold back my anger. And in those moments, I've twisted two ownerships, theirs and mine. They don't exist for my glory. And clearly in that moment, I think they should. Not only that, I think that area of turf is owned by 
mark. And so too in the sexual realm. In the management of time. In the management of relationships. We could just simply ask the question, do I act as though this thing is for me? And if I do, I'm upside down. I'm an idolater. I'm denying the creator. I'm making myself the center. Parents, this is killer. Your kids are not yours. They're not for your pleasure and your glory. They're for God's. Raise them that way. Discipline them that way. There are two ways you can get this one wrong. They are for your glory or you are for their glory. Both are idolatry. Right? So if you don't discipline your kid, if you don't raise your child to love the Lord, if you don't teach them and instruct them in the Lord, you're getting it wrong. And if you raise them to be fantastic human beings so that you get joy and glory and happiness, you're doing it wrong. Who has made those children? God has. Why has he made them? For his glory, not yours. You're an agent, a vessel, a minister for God's glory in your home. All right, number two verse. It's a lot more long uh, and complex. It's probably the, the center in terms of the theology of the psalm. Look with me in verse three. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? That second line of that initial uh, phrasing really helps us understand what he means by ascending to the hill of the Lord. James has been in the uh, morning series at, at 9 o'clock, been walking through what it means to have access to God. And, and going from the garden forward, you see that one of the central themes of all of Scripture is God's glory by allowing man, through the work of Christ, access to his holy presence. And you see the Old Testament set up in framework how the gospel makes this happen. And you don't see the clarity of the gospel until the gospel comes to life in Christ, but you see, you see the, the mechanisms and the grace and the mercy and the wickedness of sin and the, and the causes of it. So when we look in this text and it says, who shall come to this holy mountain? Look at his answer. Verse 4. He who has clean hands. I wash my hands for two minutes. And all COVID is gone. It's not the point, clearly. Who has clean hands is a euphemism for what we do that causes innocence or guilt. So we might say something like this. Someone who's committed murder has blood on their hands. They literally don't. They metaphorically do. But this is not, this is not just modern. Go to Malachi, and the man who divorces his wife without cause is covered with blood. He hasn't done any violent act of crime. He simply annulled a marriage through a divorce document so that he could marry someone prettier or wealthier. And God says, you are not innocent. You have blood on you. So when he says, he who has clean hands, he's suggesting that our behavior, our activity, especially within the community of God's people, must be such that we are innocent of wrongdoing and absolutely right in good doing. You could just summarize this as loving your neighbor as yourself. Who has done that? Who can stand innocent? This is the demand of 1 Timothy 2. God wants men everywhere lifting up what type of hands? Holy hands in prayer. I know sometimes in songs we get some hand lifters in here, but it says in prayer. Hands that are holy is a euphemism for hands that are living in a way that pleases our God. But it's not just our hands he wants, it's our hearts, pure hearts. So I'm just going to be real direct. Sexual sin rarely begins with the hands. It rarely, begin, rarely begins externally. It usually begins in the battlefield of the mind and heart. Right, so when a man violates his marriage covenant and steps out on his wife, I would imagine, having counseled enough, that we could see a series of sins, smaller and smaller, going back into the distance. 
and unrepented of sin that no one knew about, no one saw. A meditation on a beautiful woman not named his wife. A consideration of the failures of his wife or the failures of life to satisfy in the way he thinks he deserves. Leading to a series and a sequences that, that, that leads to this massive sin where we all look back, we're like, how did that happen to this sweet and godly man? And the fact is, it's a series of sins, oftentimes unrepented of, undealt with. His heart. God doesn't just ask for hearts, excuse me, that hands or behavior that's holy, but hearts that are holy. Listen, if you're not battling for holiness in your heart, you're never going to win with your hands. And God, in order to worship him, demands the whole person be holy, not just behavior. Listen, it doesn't matter if the only person who knows you're unholy is you or God himself. You're unholy if any of you is unholy. Now, I want you to consider the depressing nature of this verse. Who can come into the presence of God? No one. Right? Many of you have innocent hands. Many of you have a totally pure heart. This verse has made heaven an impenetrable fortress. It has made the dwelling place of God unapproachable because of its sacredness. This is so counter to American Christianity. And American Christianity almost pictures God as this lonely, needy old man, a little bit like Santa Claus in the North Pole with no one to be his friend, hoping you'll pick him. I don't know how strongly to say that. That is just the rankest blasphemy with which you can picture our God, and it's ruining people. And here's the picture of this text. God is happy. God is gloriously satisfied with himself, and you are on the outside. And he's looking at you saying, you got dirty hands and a dirty heart, you ain't coming in. And if you see this text clearly, you're on the outside like the people on the outside of the ark banging on the doors because you know your only rescue is on the other side of this impenetrable wall. And God from heaven says, you have some sin. I know. Let me in. You still have sin. But God, happiness is with you. I know. By the way, I think Psalm 25 is the answer to that. Look with me real quick. Look with me in verse 7. I think the psalmist, like a man beating on the outside of the ark, knows there's no way in in his own power. So here's what he pleads for in Psalm 25. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions, but according to your steadfast love, remember me. Forget my sin. My hands are guilty. My heart is guilty. I got nothing. Please don't look at my sin. Just love me. The the anchor of his hope is his God's love, not his own worthiness. Continue down, look in verse 11. For your namesake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. That is so different than the American Christian. who's like, well, Jesus, I guess I'll pick you. Aren't you happy, Jesus? Now you're not lonely. You have me. That is not the picture of the psalmist at all. He's asking God access. And he says, who can get access to God's presence? Who can enter his holy space? Who can, who can enjoy the divine presence? And the answer is, no one who has sin. 
psalmist steps back and goes, oh, so no one at all. No one at all. Chapter 25, please take away my sin so I can have access. According to your mercy, not for my sake, but for your sake. You see the God-centeredness even of his plea? For your sake, forgive me. My sin is great. Like, he sees how heavy his sin is. And he asked for relief so that God might get glory. See, a man enraptured with the beauty of his God, a man devoted to finding joy with his God, not without him, a man who recognizes that the presence of God is the only place of peace. This is the psalmist. So David recognizes that no one can enter into God's holy presence, stand in his holy place with sin. And then he says, the one who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Probably a reference to idolatry. I'm going to poke this a little bit more later, so I'm going to move on relatively quickly. But probably just the guy who is totally devoted to the Lord and doesn't have any room for idols. would be how I take this. Who does not swear deceitfully. I would see a little bit of a, a rhythm here that is um, hands would be external sins in the community, heart would be internal sins, probably then for mostly against the Lord. Then you see fidelity to the Lord instead of false gods and fidelity in the community, honesty and integrity in the community, not lying in the community. So then we come to verse 8. This one will receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. I've got to tell you, my New Testament theology immediately says, he's made righteous. Right? Like, who can go to the holy place? No one who has sin. Next verse, God gives righteousness. It's very satisfying. It's probably not right. Who will receive a blessing from the Lord probably actually speaks of that ironic blessing in, in Numbers where, where the priest was supposed to say, may the Lord bless you, may his face shine upon you. If you read that next section, it says, and the Lord will bless him. Like that was a legitimate working blessing. As opposed to some of these like, hey, the Lord bless you and keep you. Where like some random dude says it who may not even know the Lord. Okay, the priest in his priestly role saying this was actually communicating a real blessing from the Lord to the worshiper. The righteousness from God probably speaks to a vindication of the reputation that claims against the person. That is, that brings about real righteousness in the community, real rescue from problems. I think most other translations will start taking this as vindication. Almost all the commentaries would suggest the same. That is, the, the worshiper comes before the Lord and receives blessing, probably material, financial, and agricultural types of blessings, as, real as, as well as vindication from the troubles and the trials of life. Finally, and I, I don't think this should be minimized, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. That last line is significant for me. He's describing the worshiper God accepts. Notice what the worshiper wants. What is this worshiper looking for? They're seeking him. They're seeking his presence, his face. I think there is a concerning disregard for the Lord himself in our discussion of salvation. And like if you were to go to a junior high in any Christian school in this country and say, why do you need to be saved? The answer probably is something like this. So I don't go to hell. Like, I'm not going to fault the child for the answer entirely. Because that is, in fact, a motivation Jesus gives, isn't it? He's often preaching about hell to a lot of people. 
But in the psalm here, the worshiper is motivated for what? God's presence, God himself. What energizes the psalmist here is not the stuff God gives alone because he wants the God who gives it. You could see this very much in a dating relationship. Sometimes we see these types of marriages where a 20-year-old girl marries a really, really, really wealthy 85-year-old man. And we're all going like, hmm, he must be really good looking. I think most of us are thinking there's probably some other motivations involved in this. Now, perhaps he's just a fantastic personality with a gripping conversational skill. And he has wooed her heart to love him. Or it could be the fact he has a really fat bank account and he's 85. I mean, who's to judge motives? I think there are Christians who like God for his gifts but don't adore the God who gives them. And we all sense the wrongness of a marriage with twisted motives. How much more the worshiper who only sings songs about how good it is to be blessed by God, but not how good the God of blessings is. If in our battle for sin, we counsel sinners to stop sin, Without calling them to love Jesus, we're not doing it right. One of the ways in which we battle sin is by loving Jesus, moving towards him, adoring him, committing ourselves to him, pursuing his presence, and loving the God of Scripture. So, our king is the creator our king is unapproachable. Maybe I could just like, put in parentheses an explanation. If we're unholy. How many of us are unholy? Oh, you don't know how to answer that right now, do you? You're like, oh, I've been justified. I've been forgiven. I took the Lord's Supper. I'm holy. You guys know the right answer for that. But can you see what sin then does if left undealt with? We, we don't have to go long in the New Testament or the Old Testament to see that sin breaks our fellowship. This morning, Pastor Jeremy read in Romans 3, if you were to read verses 22, 23, and 24, that we are justified, that is made righteous on the basis of Christ's work as we believe. Because we're all falling short of the glory of Christ. We're all sinners. All have sinned, all fall short, and everyone is justified by the work of Christ as we believe. So we know we're made righteous and we have access, but then there's also scripture passages that warn us, like Isaiah 59 2. If you read verse 1, God's arm is not too short that he cannot save. He's not like a little toddler trying to reach the batteries behind the couch and just didn't have a long enough arm to get there. God's arm is long enough to rescue you wherever you are. That's not the issue. It's not why you're not getting rescued. God is not deaf like an old man who's lost his hearing because he's been working in a machinery plant. No, your, your sins have built a barrier between you and God, and he does not hear you, Isaiah tells Israel. Or you could just read like 1 Peter 3. Husbands, dwell with your wives in understanding so that your prayers would not be hindered. Or Proverbs 15, which says that God is against the wicked. Our king is unapproachable by the unholy. In Christ, we receive his holiness and can approach. This is why Hebrews 4 is so amazing. Therefore, we, become, we come boldly before the throne of grace so that we might receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Have you ever not been in a time of need? But that's the point. Like, that throne room never closes to those who have Christ. Right? Like, it's, it's open 24-7 like a lame gas station on the highway 
with flickering lights at one in the morning and your heart is broken and you are sinning and you need God, the throne room of God is open on the basis of Christ and no one else can enter unless they have Christ. Christians, if we are neglecting prayer, we do not see how precious the psalmist sees the presence of God. Hebrews, all through the letter to the Hebrews, speaks of drawing near to God as a metaphor for what it means to fellowship with God in prayer. Those who would draw near to him must believe that he exists and is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. This is the call of the Christian. It's not just to worship on Sunday morning. It's to walk in the presence of God through fellowship and prayer. No one else has access to that. It is an exclusive pass handed only to those who are righteous through Christ. Is he yours? Is Christ yours? So one of my concerns, I'm going to talk another kind of direct pastoral moment to our kids. If you're under the age of 20, listen up. <clears throat> like the whole youth group, at least the feminine side of it, generally speaking, over here. We talk about salvation like a transaction. Right? Like when, when children are learning how to go buy something, it's like, hey, that candy bar is 89 cents. Here's a dollar. If they ask for more than a dollar, come back and talk to me. We've got issues. The child goes in. It's 89 cents plus 7.5% sales tax. I can't do the math that quick in my head, but somewhere around 95 cents later, they have a candy bar and 5 cents left. Right? It's a transaction. You don't go to the register and have the person at the register go like, oh, you are so cute. I love that barrette in your hair. You know what? Just take the candy bar. Like, it's a transaction. There's no personal relationship involved. This psalm, speaks of salvation as coming to God himself. And we tell kids, you're saved if you think these things, know these things about Scripture, and pray this prayer. And the Bible never talks about salvation in such mechanical terms. Our God is the creator. And no one has access to them if they don't have Christ. There's no prayer that gets you in his presence. There is no truth that can be merely known and swing heaven's doors open for you if you don't have Jesus as the center of your soul's love and loyalties, you're not getting in. If you're not fully devoted to him and trusting in his death on the cross for your sins, you are not getting in. And if you are living a life that has no concern for him and his things, it means you're probably not getting in. Because that would indicate you don't love him if your life is patterned in a way that shows you don't love him. And if you don't have Jesus, heaven is locked off like Fort Knox. You're not getting in. Finally, last thought. By the way, this is a worship psalm. And it should delight God's people. I know I've been preaching kind of heavy, so. This last one's an exalting, exaltation of the king of glory. And I, I love this section because you can feel the anthem kind of rising in David's throat. Lift up your heads, O gates. And be lifted up, O ancient doors. I, I think you should write, like in light, tiny pen right there, eternal. Not ancient. Be lifted up, O eternal doors, that the king of glory may come in. And who is this king of glory? Yahweh, strong and mighty. The Lord, Yahweh, mighty in battle. And again, he calls out with the same anthem, lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O eternal doors, that the King of glory may come in. And who is the King of glory? It is Yahweh of the armies of heaven. He is the King of glory. I just want you to capture the image here. There's going to be two entrances, historically, of Jesus into Jerusalem that are going to be momentous. 
One's already happened. It's past tense. Fast forward about a thousand years. It's a warm, dusty spring day. We're about ready to celebrate Passover. And here comes a little band of people, and you can't really see what's going on. And finally, as the band draws near, you see a guy riding a little donkey as the king of glory. Coming humble, riding on a colt, and Israel's unready. They have not heeded the words of the psalmist to welcome the king of glory. He comes to the temple, and he's greeted not by the praise of the leaders. He is not anointed and welcomed as the king of kings. He's despised because he threatens their ownership of the glory of the people. Oh, the people look at the Pharisees and think they're godly. Look at the scribes and think they're smart. Look at the Sadducees and say, look how blessed those wealthy people are. Jesus, a poor king, is ignored. He is not anointed king. He is crowned a few days later on his way to the execution on the cross. Matthew predicts another coming. In Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus tells us dozens of times, I'm coming again, I'm coming again, and buckle up. There's going to be a trumpet blast. The whole world will see me. I will shake the foundations of the place. No one will miss out. I will send out my angels. I will ravage the enemy. I will be king and I will be glorified. I am coming again. And we read this psalm here. It's a call to all of God's people right now to accept him, to welcome him, to pursue him, to love him. If you consider the idea, lift up your heads, is repeated in the psalm multiple times, not just at the end. Look in verse 4. He who has a clean hands, a pure heart, who has not done what? Lifted up his soul to what is false, trusted in what is false. I think there was used as a euphemism for idolatry, and now he's calling on Jerusalem, perhaps through, through kind of a metonymy where uh, like a thing represents people. Gates represents the leaders, the people around the gates, the people who guard the city. And he's saying gates open up. Gates really don't do their own thing. That's not, the, the point isn't really cool gates. The point is the city and the powers that be welcome the king. Trust in him. He's the battle king. Right? Like, can, can, you, can you not see battle here? Verse 8, strong, mighty, mighty in battle. Verse 10, who is this glorious king? Yahweh of the armies. That's what hosts mean. The armies of heaven. He is the glorious king. This is our king. He is glorious. I just wonder how many times we're just kind of like, ah. Yeah, but I can't put down this remote control and stop watching this TV program to spend a few minutes in his word. <laughs> He's glorious, I guess. Once we let him out of his little container that we keep him in, open up Sunday mornings and put him back in. Man, we have shrunk the glorious king. We say, well, well, what do you mean have we shrunk him? Well, consider all the ways in this passage, especially at the end, when he says he's this glorious, victorious king, we look to everything else but Jesus for victory. We look to retirement accounts, shrewd investments. We look to education, to skills with our intellect to be able to navigate life. Some of us are just hard workers. We know we're not the smartest guy in the room, but man, we will work from dawn to dusk to take care of our family. We trust in our health. We trust in our physical power. We trust in our ability to plan. Sometimes we just trust in our family and their money. We trust in things. Sometimes we just trust in our government and the welfare check. We trust in everything but our king. 
this is not new. Why do you think David is saying, the king is coming. He is the king. Victory is from him. He is the one you need to trust in. Look to the king. He gets the glory. He is the winner. Trust in him. It's like, yeah, i got to get back to my field and plant, otherwise I'll never get a harvest. So I'm not going to do this like a whole vacation in Jerusalem worship day. Oh, so you got to get your crop done so that the king who made the crop gets neglected. And you're going to tell me you trust in the king? Please do not hear me to be saying too strongly that if you miss a Sunday, you trust in whatever caused you to miss a Sunday, whether you trust in family for happiness or trust in your work to care for you. But man, we live in a world where our hearts are owned by everything but the king who made it and purchased it with his blood. Can I just tell you the sweetest thing about the psalm is God. He's our creator. He has made us to find satisfaction in him. If you want to know how satisfying God is, all the stuff that you're chasing instead of God is meant to be a sampler of how good God is, that you might run to God. Some of you are eating the micro, microwave warmed-up samplers at Sam's Club on Friday instead of the full chef-made version that God has designed for your joy. I've never really had a microwaved steak. I don't really want one. But if you're eating microwave steak, it might be because you've never had the real thing. And I do think there are some people in this room who may not know Jesus as Savior. He is good. He is your creator. He is unapproachable without holiness. And so you need to trust in him for forgiveness that he might make you righteous. Who is holy? None without Jesus. And he is the sole place in which your trust must rest. He is creator. He is unapproachable. And he is victor. Because he's creator, you owe him glory. He is unapproachable, therefore you must be holy through Christ. And finally, he is victor, therefore trust him to satisfy. No matter what's going on in your life, nothing will satisfy except our God. Do you believe that? So one of the ways in which I think we've counseled our own hearts, and I'll close with this, I don't think you just resist sin by recognizing it's bad. I think you resist sin by replacing it with what is good. And I think some, some of you are really trying to fight the fight of sexual purity. You're really trying to fight the, the battle against personal anger. You're really trying to fight the battle for contentment in a life situation that just does not bring much joy to you. And so you're just sitting there, like, on your spiritual hands, going like, I can take it. I can take it. I'm not going to give in. <laughs> give in. You're like, oh, Lord, again. Do you delight in the presence of your sweet Savior? Do you, do you find yourself thinking like this psalm, the King of glory is mine, and I am his? And when I wake up and grab my coffee and my Bible, this is like so good. Coffee, but Jesus. Or are you like, I gotta read my Bible again. I'm like two and a half weeks behind, and I'm three weeks into the year. I need to read my Bible. Where there's no joy in following Jesus. As you battle sin, do you battle it with joy? Knowing that no matter what expression of sin has, it's an indictment against Jesus satisfying you. Full people stop eating. When you're satisfied with Jesus, you stop sinning. And some of you, you're starving yourself from Jesus, and you wonder why sin is so strong. Find Jesus.
He is the king who gives victory. Trust in him. His presence satisfies. He made you to be satisfied in him. Trust in Jesus. He is holy, and he gives you holiness. Trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the psalmist, this sweet worshiper who trains our hearts how to worship you. We thank you that you have not lowered the standard of holiness. God forbid that you would become unholy to welcome us and thereby dethrone your own deity. God, we thank you. Instead, you have made us holy by the blood of Jesus. What an incredible way. Just breaks our own wisdom and causes us to trust you. That you would see your son lay down his life so that by dying we might live. That by his becoming sin we might be made righteous. Like Paul, we, we just simply declare the, the measure of your wisdom, the unsearchableness of your thoughts is, is just beyond our comprehension. And we thank you for being this glorious God beyond us and yet accessible who reaches down and through the work and ministry of Jesus Christ saves us. Lord, I would ask that that saving work have its full effect by purging us sanctifying our desires, giving us a satisfaction with Jesus Christ, helping us to stir up a hatred and a rejection of the ugliness of sin that's in us. Lord, I pray that you would train our church to call people to see the goodness of our God, the sweetness of our Savior, the majesty of our Lord. He is good. And we are so blessed to be his. Lord, I pray that we would call people to see that blessing, to see the goodness of knowing that we are saved forever from sin. Help us to honor you, Lord. Help us to live this week in light of this text that we might live for you, that we might worship you, that we might exalt your name, that you might be trusted in in all ways, that you might be proven to be the one who satisfies our souls. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.